Hello and welcome to yet another edition of the International Intrigue Audio Newsletter. This is where we read to our two main stories so that you can multitask and go about your busy days. This week we've got two great stories. Firstly, we take a look at Tunisia 10 years after the Arab Spring. As the region's only real democracy, what might the future hold? And our second story is a little bit of a follow-on from last week, where we ask, okay, if the world is getting more volatile, what can we do about it? It's all about an anti-fragile foreign policy. As always, we think they're two great stories. So without further ado, on to the first story. Modern Tunisia, 10 years after the Arab Spring. Every year, the 25th of July is a day of jubilee for Tunisians. It marks a day that Tunisia became a republic back in 1957 and celebrates the abolishment of the monarchy, unaided, I must note, by Meghan Markle. This year, the 25th of July was even more memorable than usual. The country celebrated 18-year-old Tunisian swimmer Ahmed Hafnawi's epic Olympic win in the men's 400-metre freestyle in Tokyo. Hafnawi upset Aussie and American favourites from all the way out in lane 8, a major Eric the Eel feel-good vibes a la Sydney 2000. Incredible. But the euphoria was short-lived. By the afternoon, anti-government protests took place in the capital, Tunis, and several other cities. Widespread frustration at the country's steady economic downturn, the worst since 1956, and the government's botched COVID-19 handling, Tunisia's per capita death rate is the highest in Africa with only a 7% vaccination rate, fueled the unrest. Tunisian President Kai Saeed, dubbed the Robocop a la Terminator, responded to these protests by dismissing the government. He fired the Prime Minister, Hichem Mehik, assumed all executive power, and froze Parliament for 30 days. He also sacked some senior ministers, shut the Al Jazeera officers, accused of sympathising with his opponents, and banned gatherings of three people or more. His opponents accused him of a power grab, while his supporters filled the streets in jubilation. President Saeed promised that he would restore power to Parliament and appoint another Prime Minister at an unspecified time, quote-unquote, when the situation settles down. The many in Tunisia are not convinced. Having only just emerged in January 2011 from a brutal 23-year dictatorship under former President Ben Ali, Tunisians are now cautiously watching to see how this latest development will unfold to test this beginners-level democracy. The Darling of the Arab Spring So how did things in Tunisia get to this point? To answer that, let's do a recap of the Arab Spring. Tunisia was a birthplace of the Arab Spring, a series of pro-democracy uprisings across largely Muslim countries in the Middle East and North Africa. Now, back in December 2010, Tunisian fruit vendor Mahmoud Bouazi self-immolated in protest against endemic government corruption. His death kicked off countrywide and regional protests, and the eventual toppling of then-Tunisian President Ben Ali, ushering in the nation's transition to democracy. In the decade that's passed, Tunisia has emerged as the only success story from the Arab Spring. Among the countries which ousted their dictators during the movement, only Tunisia has remained a democracy. It has free elections, free speech, a liberal democratic constitution, peaceful transitions of power, 
and political candidates spanning the religious and ideological spectrums. And that's no small feat in such a combustible region, not exactly short on autocrats. Long simmering problems in Tunisia. But a successful transition into a democracy has not guaranteed socioeconomic equity or dignity. The unaddressed root causes of the Arab Spring have only deepened and metastasized. Youth unemployment remains one of the highest in the region, with over a third of young people lacking job prospects. Tunisia has an economy that's tourism dependent and exports cheap agricultural goods while importing more expensive energy and industrial goods. Tunisia has frequent political stalemates in government due to its electoral laws. The stalemates then produce a fragmented parliament with slim majorities resulting in slow reform and progress. And lower socioeconomic Tunisians still remain susceptible to recruitment by extremist terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda. And finally, the healthcare crisis has only worsened in the country during the pandemic. All these issues combined to create public discontent with the Tunisian government. The frustrations felt by the average Tunisian meant that President Said's dismissal of the government actually received huge public support. Videos posted to social media showed crowds celebrating Said's moves. And according to some opinion polls, around 87% of Tunisians supported his brave and decisive action to rid the country of what they viewed as an ineffective and corrupt government. Zoom out. As you can see, it's a complicated situation in Tunisia, which is why many Western allies of the country have been hesitant to call the developments the C-word, um, a coup in case there's any confusion. They're hopeful that Said will keep his word and restore power to parliament. But here are some other broader takeaways about Tunisia's journey during the Arab Spring until now. 1. Transitioning to democracy is not a straightforward, linear process. Sometimes it's one step forward, ten steps back, and democratic institutions take years to become fully formed. Europe learned this from the failed 1848 rebellions. The transition to democracy also requires huge international and diplomatic support to succeed, something that's lacking in the current climate. Two, democracies require more than just elected governments to survive. They need a strong civil society. Tunisia's civil society was instrumental in wrestling the country's wobbly transition from the brink of collapse in 2013, for which they won the Nobel Peace Prize, and may be called on again to facilitate national dialogues. Three, if things spiral downhill, Tunisia's developments will test whether US President Biden's vocal commitments to protecting democracies translates into military action. I mean, after all, Tunisia is important to the US for counterterrorism purposes and as a bulwark to protect the southern flank of NATO. And finally, there's been a lot written about democracy as an aspirational model of governance. But as one interview Tunisian street vendor put it, what's the value of a vote? when you can't eat. Perhaps people just want jobs and a social safety net, regardless of what political system creates that environment. So unless these root political and economic issues in Tunisia are resolved, there will always be Tunisians who believe that the democratic model doesn't deliver. Anti-Fragile Foreign Policy This piece is inspired by Nassim Taleb's book Anti-Fragile. It's a fascinating read about risk and randomness. 
I'll do my best to adapt his ideas, but you can also check out a summary by following the link. On my first day as a baby diplomat, Peter Varghese, Australia's chief diplomat at the time, gave my cohort some advice. Everyone needs to formulate a worldview, develop an opinion about how the world works and why, and then figure out what Australia should do about it. So last week I explored some ideas for figuring out the how the world works and why bit of the equation by using the VUCA or VUCA mental model. This week I'll explore the second half of Varghese's equation. So if the pace of unpredictable geopolitical change is increasing, how should countries respond? But first, a little detour. The purpose of foreign policy. The Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade website has the following mission statement. DFAT promotes and protects Australia's international interests to support our security and prosperity. Snooze. Let me translate. The world is really scary and unpredictable. And because we'd like to not be robbed or killed, we'll do everything we can to promote stability and predictability. And that's not just Australia. That's the goal of just about every foreign service on earth. In fact, trying to exert some control over the world in order to avoid unpredictable events has been the aim of every nation from ancient Rome to modern China. The problem is, no foreign policy can ever reliably predict or prevent black swan events. For example, perfect military planning still wouldn't have saved the world in 1983 if a Soviet military officer named Stanislav Petrov had actually decided to fire nuclear missiles at America. But instead, Petrov delayed launching the missiles, suspecting that the Soviet early warning alarm was malfunctioning. He was right, and the world got very, very lucky. Now, hang on just a minute. Wasn't that gut instinct from a brilliant officer? It wasn't luck, it was flawless analysis. Well, perhaps, but almost certainly not. The truth is we humans love to ascribe good results to wise decisions and dismiss poor outcomes as simply bad luck. Driving home drunk without crashing is because I'm just a superb driver, while getting pulled over by the police is just my luck. Nassim Taleb believes humans underestimate the role of randomness and luck in the world so much that it negatively affects our decision-making on an almost daily basis. He calls this idea fooled by randomness, and yes, he's calling all of us idiots. So what is anti-fragility? Well, anti-fragility is Taleb's answer for how to live in that mostly random world. From his book, Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain From Disorder. Some things benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stresses. They love adventure, risk, and uncertainty. Anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists random shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. Let me give you a few examples. The rule of law. The acquittal of a murderer due to police corruption during the investigation might be seen as a bad shock to the system. But that stressor actually improves the judicial system overall because citizens now have an increased belief in its fairness and impartiality. Or what about weight training? Lifting heavy weights stresses human muscles resulting in tiny tears and temporary damage. But after a short while, Muscles repair themselves, and the body becomes stronger as a result of the stress. And for a fuller explanation, you can check out this wonderful video explainer that I'll link to. Anti-fragility is not the same as stability. But John, you said that most foreign policies are focused on stability and predictability. 
Isn't that the same as mitigating the risk of random shocks? And why do you ask yourself so many rhetorical questions? No, and to be honest, I'm not sure, but should I be worried? Okay, let's run a quick experiment. Step one, imagine a giant depression ravages the globe. Think about the political, economic, and social consequences of that disaster. Now list the five countries you think would come out the other side of that shock in the best shape. Step two, consider the five principal sources of geopolitical fragility according to Taleb. They are a centralized governing system, an undiversified economy, excessive debt and leverage, a lack of political variability, and no history of surviving past shocks. Step three, repeat step one. So did your list change? I'll bet it did, particularly if your initial list included countries like Japan, Saudi Arabia, Germany, or Australia. When we apply the idea of anti-fragility, messy regimes like Italy, whose political chaos is legendary, come out as more likely to thrive than more stable in control countries. The key takeaway here is that any policy that pursues stability first is not preparing for uncertainty or randomness. A stable system merely kicks the can down the road until an inevitable black swan shock. How badly that black swan event affects the stability-focused system will most likely be down to luck. So what might an anti-fragile foreign policy look like? Boris Johnson, according to his former advisor Dominic Cummings, said, The chaos means everyone will look to me as the man in charge. To be clear, I'm not advocating for a completely chaotic foreign policy. Or for Boris Johnson to be in charge of it, either. But let's take a few key pillars of anti-fragility and adapt them into some foreign policy rules of thumb. 1. Never lever up, aka the first rule of gambling. A country that cultivates us-first-them narratives and demands that others pick a side is essentially staking its future on randomness. While one country might believe that their side will triumph in any great showdown, the outcome will actually be in large part random. 2. Run many small experiments. Anti-fragile systems tinker liberally. In the foreign policy context, this might include funding interesting ideas with no obvious immediate gain. Or perhaps it means rethinking the role of embassies. Could digital embassies be the future of foreign services? Small bets on lots of outcomes increase the upside and decrease the downside of unpredictable shocks. 3. Pursue multilateralism. Regional or global cooperation is anti-fragile. Black swan shocks to a global system are distributed across many countries, meaning any one shock is less likely to destroy a country. More than that, with each stress test, a multilateral organization can learn and adapt, making it anti-fragile. And there are many, many other ways in which the concept of anti-fragility can be applied to foreign policy. Navigating an uncertain future. Look, I think too many foreign policies are focused on pursuing stability at all costs as the antidote to an increasingly unpredictable world. And too many foreign policies are reactionary, responding inconsistently and often poorly to events as and when they happen. I think we can do better. Acknowledging that the world is changing quickly and in unpredictable ways does not mean we ought to hunker back down behind national borders and prepare to ride out the storm. Anti-fragility provides an alternative a way of thinking and acting that allows us to not only engage with the world and its randomness, but also grow stronger because of it. We could do a lot worse. 
there you have it for yet another week. Thank you for listening as always. We hope you enjoyed the stories. Feel free to get in touch with us if you listen this far by tweeting us at intintrigue, that's at intintrigue on Twitter, or you can reply to the email which we will list in the show notes. No more housekeeping from us other than to say have a great rest of your week. Until next week. <laughs>